David Goodwin, Brandon Queen, Ryan Bays. Thank really the whole worship team, Joyce, everybody that spends so much time. I want to thank you, Mackenzie, for the time you spend um, on the computer. Thank you for that service to us and leading us to worship every Sunday. And we're very thankful uh, for God's grace in your life. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege to sit before your word. It's just awesome. It really is awesome. Because in it, we're changed, we're transformed, we are, we, we are helped. And redemptive Savior, you are so kind. You are so cor- lovingly corrective. And so in this, in this sermon, in this corrective sermon, that's going to feel corrective, um, but yet it's, Lord, thank you for your love that you want to correct us. That you don't want us to stay the same. So help us. Do what only you can do and, and make us change us through this hour in, an, in, a, in a remarkable way. For the good of our marriages and for the good of this church and for the good of our kids, for the good of us as parents. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John Trent is the founding president of a ministry called Strong Families. And uh, he tells a story in a journal article that I read this week of a girl named Mary who grew up in the 1950s. And uh, Mary grew up knowing that she was different from all the other kids. That was clear, and she hated it. She was born with a cleft palate. Does she know what that is? It's a distorted lip. And, and uh, she had to endure the jokes and laughter of cruel children who just berated her and and laughed at her and teased her for her deformed face and slurred speech. And she heard those words so much that in time she actually grew to hate herself. That's so sad. Anyway, eventually Mary came to the conclusion that no one outside of her family would ever love her. You know, that is until she entered uh, Mrs. Leonard's class. Mrs. Leonard was a, uh, was a nice lady. She had a warm smile, and Mary came to love her. Now, in the 1950s, you have to know that, according to John Trent, uh, it was common for teachers to give a hearing test to their students. And, uh, and so Mary, being afraid of this, uh, knew that actually, because she not only had a cleft palate, she actually had a deaf ear. One of her ears was just... It was just useless, essentially. And uh, she was afraid, and so she came to class one day um, and determined not to let the other children laugh at yet one more thing wrong with her. Um, She decided to cheat on this whisper test. And uh, the way it would go is the teacher would whisper a word, and she would listen for that word and have to repeat it to see if her hearing was correct. So what she did was she went into the classroom, and she actually... um, she turned her bad ear toward the teacher, and she listened with her good ear. Normally, teachers would say things like, the sky is blue, or uh, what color are your shoes? But on this day, seven words came out of the mouth of Mrs. Leonard that changed Mary's life. Mary heard the words when the whisper test came. Mary heard the words, I wish you were my little girl. 
Well, that's a moving story of a girl who both experienced the power of a destructive tongue and the power of a healing tongue. And it illustrates that our words have direction to them. Some of our words move clearly in the direction of death, while other words move clearly in the direction of life. Two different trajectories. With one mouth, we either bless people made in the image of God or we curse people uh, made in the image of God, as James says. And last week, we talked about the killing power of the tongue. We looked at three words that um, I characterized as especially deadly for our marriages, for our parenting, for raising families, and for our church. Uh, We looked at a lying tongue, a gossiping tongue, and harsh words. And if you remember, under harsh words, I had a series of of different types of words. Uh, Words that are destructive. Words that are sarcastic and cutting. Words that are hurtful and discrediting. Words that are critical. And we saw how those words tear down families, they tear down marriages, and they, they really just make a wreck of the church. And uh, anyway, in the middle of that message, I mentioned a tongue test. Remember that? And, uh, and I want you to try this tongue test out. Uh, I got an email, a really encouraging email, from a, from a brother in the church who said, I've got to tell you something. He got to tell you, on our way to church last Sunday, my wife and I had an argument And we were exchanging hurtful words to one another. We came to church, sat down, and you preached a sermon on on destructive words. (laughs) And uh, and then you gave us a tongue test. And we went home and we tried it, and it's it's been been helpful to us. That that seems so encouraging. So did you do it? Did you you take the test? How how did you do on it? How, How quickly did you fail the test? Uh, it's funny because I took the test with my wife. We took it together, and uh, one night I said something critical to my wife about, about another person. And she called me on, out on it, and uh, she said, that's critical speech. And so I immediately gave her a reason why I said it. I said, I did. I said, I said see, I said, look, here's the reason why I said that. And she said, now you're using defensive speech. <laughs> So in a playful way, I said, well, I mean, you kind of provoked me. She said, now you're blame shifting. I said, I said, Tina, this speech isn't exactly very edifying on your part. And she said, now you're using accusatory speech. So laughing in utter defeat, I just said, I'm going to bed. Tina gave me this tip. She said, honey, you'll do a lot better on this test if you just don't talk. Now, you guys should feel compassion for me because I'm married not only to a psychiatrist who's able to analyze all my speech, but I'm married to a a woman who's far more intelligent than I am. So if you guys feel compassion for me, I I have no wiggle room. How can I get get around this thing with Tina? So if you all feel bad for me, feel free to send me a care package this week. I'd be happy to have some cinnamon rolls or Starbucks gift cards or something. But seriously, this, this test is hard. And if you took it, you'll know it is brutal. It reveals so much sin. I could not believe that every other turn of my own speech, I was recognizing sin in my heart. Sin in my mouth. And uh, so let me encourage you. If you haven't taken that test, do it this week. All right? I'll, I'll try to email that out again. 
And uh, if you have taken it, why don't you take it again and extend it another day? Try it for another day or two. Because I want us to grow in our speech. Um, I want us to develop new patterns of speech, new, new rules for how we communicate. Well, today we come to the subject of, we come to the opposite side, the life-giving power of the tongue. And God is eager to help us grow in this area. Here's the thing that just so encourages me. As, as I prayed, our Savior is redemptive, and so he wants our marriages and families and church to be transformed. That, that's so encouraging. He's not content to leave us as we are. And, and so I want to look at two categories of words that bring healing in life. Okay, here they are. Growth words and gospel words. Growth words and gospel words. And we're going to look at each of those. Let's start with growth words. Now, when I use the phrase growth words, okay, that's not a phrase you've probably heard before. Um, what I have in mind here are words that build up. Words that are constructive. Words that equip. Words that enrich my walk with Christ. Words that, in short, help me grow as a Christian. And there are several categories of words that serve that purpose. Let's start with the first one. Let's start with words of truth. Words of truth. Proverbs 12, verse 17 says, Whoever speaks the truth declares what is right. As you know, friends, the truth is absolutely essential. Uh, we cannot love one another unless we are speaking words of truth. But as we speak words of truth, we need to be confident that they are going to help each other. That words of truth are actually life-giving. Proverbs 14, 25 says, A truthful witness rescues lives. Isn't that great? It actually has there's a rescuing power to truth. That is, healthy, life-giving speech is the kind of speech that involves truth-telling. And it rescues us. It's helpful to us. It's life-saving, in fact. Jesus was praying for his disciples in John 17, uh, verse 17. And in that verse, Jesus says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So the fuel for transformation, clearly, is the truth. And it will always be the truth. And that means we are to be speaking the living, abiding word of God to one another in relationship until it begins to change us. And you think about that truth over and over, just constantly truth, 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 until it begins to change us. This is the greatest book that's ever been written because it's the only book that God has written. And it's full of truth. And it's the only book that God has preserved and protected and promoted. And so we need to be people of this book. Constantly sharing truth from it. And the question is, are we standing on this as a church? Are we standing on it as a family? And, and by standing on it, I, I don't mean do you acknowledge it as truth. By standing on it, I mean has it moved from something we value to something that's changing us? Practically. Ask yourself the question, is this changing you? Do you feel the effects of this book in your life? Because I would say that we don't really respect the truth unless we actually want it or eager for this to get deep down into our hearts and, and affect us and change us. Here's a fact. Strong families, strong marriages, and strong churches feed on the truth. You can take that one to the bank. 
That's what they are. You want a marriage that's going to last? You want a family that fears the Lord? You want kids that grow up to love Jesus more than anything else? Then we have to speak the truth to one another. That is non-negotiable. Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty four, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. Now, you think about that. It means, essentially, it's not enough to just hear words of truth. Jesus says we have to act on words of truth. And there are two kinds of marriages, and there are two kinds of families, and there are two kinds of churches those who build themselves on the truth and those who don't. And you can see the, the, the drastic differences between the two practically. Listen, God is aware. thought about this. This is a convicting thought for me. But God is aware of your relationship with his word. God knows how it's being applied in your life. He knows what you're doing with it. He knows if you're eager to apply the truth or if you're happy to just listen to the truth and never act on it. God knows that. He, let, let me ask you, do you love God? Do you love his desires and his will and his purposes? Are you committed to his truth in your marriage and family? I think you would say you are. And I hope that practically you are living that way. And if you are, then listen. We only get so many words to influence our family. So many words. The kids are getting older, and as they get older, the less time we have to influence our kids with words of truth. And if you're married, you, can, you, you will be readily agree with this, but the longer you're married, the more things get set in stone, and the patterns of speech become harder and harder to break. And so with that said, it's essential, friends, that we develop the habit of speaking truth regularly to one another. John Piper told us one time in class when I was at the Bethlehem Institute, I'll never forget it. It was so powerful. Um, he just said it was so, at that time, awkward because he looked at us and he just ran, it was just out of nowhere. He just said, guys, look, don't speak to me about anything other than Jesus. He said, and at first it just kind of, it was kind of caustic. But what I understood his heart behind it, he said, I'm getting old. And I don't want to think about anything other than Jesus because he is the truth. And so please don't talk to me about anything other than Christ and the scriptures. And, you know, that hit me. Hit me hard because when you're young, you're just so happy to just talk about whatever. You know, you're just shooting the breeze. You know, you're just talking and yip-yapping about everything. And, then, and, and how little of that is truth-soaked. How little of that is Christocentric. How little of that is life-changing. And we're getting old. We, we, are, we are getting old, and, and, and our time is getting shorter, and it is essential that we speak truth. So that's words of truth. They're life-giving. Try it, try it in your home. Here's a second category of words that promote growth. Words of correction. I'm sure you anticipated this one. Words of correction. Proverbs, Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Well, that's a famous verse, isn't it? Charles Bridges, I read his commentary on that this week, and he says this, says the following. The mark of true godliness is an eagerness, an eagerness, listen, to have our faults pointed out and a thankfulness to those who do it. <laughs> that guy's on another level. An eagerness 
Anybody eager to have your faults pointed out? And, and, and usually we're thankful afterwards, but at the time, are you thankful? It's amazing for me to see people that in the moment when they're being corrected, they're like, thank you, brother, thank you. I, and there's a false humility there, too, but there's also the genuine God. You see that? You can tell he's like, I needed that. Thanks. And that's just encouraging to see that. But see, a true, man, a true friend is a man who's willing to wound his friend if it helps him. And we need to help, we need the help of other people to see those areas about us that need to change. I'm so, I'm so grateful when I step back and look at it. Uh, I'm usually never grateful in the moment. Okay? But when I step back and look at it, I'm so grateful for friends and a wife that will tell me the truth about myself. Listen, a person who's not willing to wound you does not love you enough. And if you're not willing to wound somebody that you say you love, then you do not love them enough. Enough. See, here's the thing. This, this, I was thinking about this Friday, and I wrote down a series of things here, because this exposes all kinds of idolatry here. The question is, why don't we do this? Why don't we wound other people? Why, why aren't we willing to be wound, wounded? Here, if, here, here's why I think. If you're building your life on the approval of others, you won't speak truth. If you're motivated by what people think about you, you won't speak truth to them. On the other hand, if you're eager to correct other people, that says something about your inflated view of self. And people who love to correct other people are typically, typically not open to correction themselves. So test yourself here. What, which is your tendency? Are, is your tendency to correct too much or to not correct enough? In our elders meetings, we are going through a packet um, called uh, a pastor self-evaluation questionnaire. And uh, it's, it's been really good. And it's, it's meant to challenge us as pastors to examine our lives carefully on certain issues. And I just wanted to pull out a paragraph and share it with you. Okay? Because I want you all, because this is universally applicable to us. And it's about being corrected and correcting others. And I just want you to listen to these diagnostic questions. Okay? Listen to, listen to, to Keller and Powelson here. Do you acknowledge your limitations and needs out of confidence in Christ's gracious power? Do you demonstrate a willingness to admit your mistakes, sins, and weaknesses? Are you defensive, guarded, or hypersensitive? Now, stop here for a second. How many of us would have to admit that maybe one of the reasons why we're not being corrected is because we're hypersensitive? As soon as the correction comes, it's like, bam, right back. And you, you become gunshot with a person like that. Because you don't want to, you, that's awkward. That's hard to deal with. So it just it made me ask the question, it, I must be hypersensitive, hyperdefensive. Because I'm wondering why I'm not getting corrected as much as I need to be corrected. So it could be either that or it could be a fear of other people not wanting to correct just because they're just giving in to approval, idolatry or something. But anyway, listen to how he goes on to say here, he says... Do you model that a Christian life is an open life? But you're an open book to other people. You're not hiding. Do you demonstrate that the Christian life is a work in process 
Or are you a completed project? Do you give off the feeling that you're completed? Now, here's, here's a section on correcting others. Are you able to confront the failings of others? To admonish people in a way that's not punitive, not irritable, but breathes the invitations of God's grace? Do you contribute to destructive conflict or to peacemaking? On the other hand, they, they don't give you any wiggle room here. It's great. On the other hand, are you too tolerant? Are you naively optimistic about people? Do you massage people's egos with praise and unconditional positive regard? Is your love limp and truthless? Do you whitewash or minimize problems rather than tackle them? Are you a peacemaker willing to enter into constructive conflict because of biblical love? Or are you a peace lover and a conflict avoider? Wow. I mean, those are penetrating questions, challenging stuff. So let me give you a second, uh, let me give you a second challenge for this week, okay, along with a tongue test. Get these questions from me. Um, get alone with God and go through them. And if you're bold enough and gospel grounded enough, then go through them with a friend or a spouse and ask them to help you answer them. Well, words that correct are life-giving words. You think about that. If you get corrected, you're helped, massively helped. So they're life-giving, okay? But we also need words of encouragement. Proverbs twelve twenty-five says, Anxiety in a person's heart weighs him down, but an encouraging word brings joy. And uh, how many of you have experienced the truth of that statement? Uh, Hebrews chapter ten twenty four says, uh, and let us consider how to stir up another to love and good works. Now, I like that imagery, stirring up, the stirring up one another. What does it mean? Well, have you ever been at a campsite or had a bonfire or some small fire going? And after the, you know, kind of the, the wood has burned up, you're left with coals. And the coals are there. And then those coals, after some time, become gray. But, you know, they're still alive, but there's embers there. And what happens when you begin to blow on, that, on those coals? You blow the embers off, and then you begin to blow, and then a new flame comes up. That's the idea here in Hebrews chapter 10. That, that's what we're supposed to do for one another. We are to be fanning the flame of passion for God in one another. That's our calling as Christians. And, and you know where that happens? That happens... Here in the corporate gathering, but it also happens on the care group level. It happens when little pockets of people get together for prayer and worship and Bible study and mission. And this should happen spontaneously. I love it when I hear of people just spontaneously getting together for prayer. You know, come over, y'all come over, we'll have dinner and pray together. We, we need more of that kind of dynamic in our church. I'm convinced of that. Uh, so, some of you should be asking yourselves... You know, why isn't this, this felt in my life? You know, you, you, you wonder, you say, well, well, why do I seem to be losing passion for God? When I look over there and I see that other brother racing ahead spiritually and, and, and things just seem to be going well for him. But I'm just, I just feel like I'm just kind of here. I'm not really growing. I'm not really going anywhere. Well, I'll tell you one reason why. Because it takes more than a Sunday Christian 
Sunday morning Christian to thrive spiritually. You cannot be on fire for God if you isolate yourself and avoid meaningful spiritual connectedness with other Christians of a local church. You need to be around believers who are getting together, challenging and exhorting one another. And that type of fellowship will create an environment of intense worship. And the more regular it happens, the more intense that worship becomes and the more your life begins to be transformed. So don't look at the other guy and say, man, I just I just wonder why he's doing well. Look at the other guy and say, that's encouraging me and provoking me to do the same things. We need to get around other Christians that will do this for us. And these are these are words. These are growth words that we're talking about here. Truth and correction and encouragement. Okay. now let's switch gears and let's talk about a separate category of words that give life. Okay, gospel words. Let's go from growth words to gospel words. Gospel words are words that transform us. They give us hope. They motivate us. They shape our identity, which is crucial in this day and age. They heal relationships and they fuel worship. Okay, these, here's the first. The first set of these words is words of love. Words of love. Paul gives us a pretty clear picture of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, 4 through 7. What a text. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not envious. Love does not brag. It is not puffed up. It is not rude. It is not self-serving. It is not easily angered or resentful. It is not glad about injustice, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Isn't that great? That's great stuff. And that, you know, that should be a text that we review with our spouse regularly. Take some time and pray through that list as a husband or wife. As church members, we need to pray through that list. Imagine if our church was powerfully characterized by these verses. Powerfully. I mean, dynamically to a point to where you're like, you, people walk in here and they say, there's a dynamic here of love. that, and, uh, and just to encourage you, I've been hearing testimonies like that. I've been hearing testimonies about our church that, you know, I felt so loved. I felt so warmly invited. Praise God for that. You know, let's let's keep that going. Let's work on that. Let's keep developing that. You guys are doing well. Let's continue in that. So these verses are huge for us. You know, for some of us, loving speech is as simple as restraining our speech. I mean, think about this. Proverbs 17, 28 says, even a fool is considered wise when he keeps silent, discerning when he seals his lips. Um, some of us just need to seal it. Just keep your tongue in your mouth on a more regular basis. Restraining words. Proverbs seventeen twenty seven says, The intelligent person restrains his words. And the one who keeps a cool head is a man of understanding. Here, here's what that means. Just don't say it. Just, just don't say it. I know you want to say it. I know, she, I know she just provoked you, but don't say it. Just, just don't say it. If you have to walk out of the room, walk out of the room. If you have to pray right there, pray. If you have to sing a song, sing a song. But don't say it. The one who, the Proverbs twenty one twenty three says, and here's why. The one who guards his mouth and tongue keeps himself out of trouble. 
you're going to avoid trouble. You're going to just, just, just avoid trouble in your marriage. Avoid trouble in your friendship. Avoid trouble. Think about how we avoid trouble at the members meeting. Think about how we talk to our wife and kids. Imagine that a man comes home at the end, end, end of his day. He's worked really hard. He's hungry. He has, he has worked hard. He is eager to have a good meal. He walks into the door, into the house, and, and he, he smells something burning. His wife has had a rough day. She, she's had a bad day. I mean, it's, it's, been a, it's been a bad day. And the kids have been a mess. And one of the kids just, just made a wreck of the house. And, and, so, and so she's taking care of that. And, and the food got burned in the oven. Okay? And so she's, she, she's just, just frazzled. And they sit down for dinner. And he leans over. And he kind of leans in. And he says... I worked really hard for you, and I don't demand much, but an edible meal would be nice. Now, is she going to say, I'm so glad this man loves me. I'm so glad that I just want to entrust myself to him and give myself to this man and entrust my heart to him. Now imagine, let's switch the scenario. Imagine that a man comes home and he smells something burned. And his wife is embarrassed about it as they sit down. And the man grabs her hand and says to her, Dear, it's okay. You serve us well every day. I, I, in ways that I'll never notice... If all I have to do is eat something that's charred once in a while, (laughs) I have so much to be thankful for. And I love you. Besides, I'm hungry. Let's eat. Okay? These are two different marriages, but they're both built on words. One is built on life words, and the other is built on death words. Now... Think about this. Those marriages are both going in trajectories. And if those two scenes are replayed out 20 times in a week, 50 times in a month, a thousand times in six months, those marriages are moving in a direction of life or death. And after 15 years, uh, one marriage will be dead for all intents and purposes and the other one will be thriving. And couples come in and they sit down with a pastor and say, I don't know what happened. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Words of death over and over and over and over again. And your marriage was on that trajectory for years. And you didn't correct it. You didn't correct it. And, and how many couples have to go through that? Oh, dear friends, look, if you're in a marriage right now that's in that situation, then, then look, look, you can change it. By God's grace, let me give you hope. You can change that thing. Don't go home to your husband or wife and say, see what Pastor John was saying? See, he said, we've been on death words and, 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 and we got to get... No, go home with, a, with grace and say, I have hope for us still. There's hope for us. Pastor Jonathan said, the Holy Spirit will empower us to change. There's hope for us. Go home and, and, and pray. You guys get alone with God. Have a, have a repentance session. Sit with your wife and say, honey, we've, we've sinned against God. Let's repent. We've gone through ten years of, 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 of hardship together in a marriage. God, forgive us. You guys weep together before God. And then lean hard on His power to change you. 
Oh, I want to see that happen. These are death words. Think about how we talk to, think about how the talk is in our home. How much of it is impatient and unkind. How often are words spoken out of selfishness and personal desire? How easy do outbursts of anger occur? How often do we bring up past wrongs? How often do we fail to communicate hope? How often do our words carry threats that we've had it and we're about to quit? Friends, it's time for some of us to confess that we don't know the way of love. We say we know the way of love, but we don't live like it. We need to cry out for grace and swim in the waters of 1 Corinthians 13 until we choose the way of love. Here's a practical plan for you. Meditate on 1 Corinthians 13 until it changes your speech. Just linger there until you are different. Well, that leads us to another gospel word that we need. It's words of forgiveness. Words of forgiveness. Proverbs 19 11 says, a person's wisdom makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. Jesus said, forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, Jesus didn't just talk about forgiveness. Jesus did forgiveness. From tax collectors to self-righteous Pharisees, Jesus forgave sinners. He even forgave a man in his last hour, a criminal in his last hour. Jesus is all about Forgiveness. Now, here's the question. As a professing follower of Jesus, are you all about forgiveness? No doubt there are couples here who have been hurt or offended by another, maybe another couple or maybe another person. But whether that came from a friend or from a family member or from someone in the church, the fallout of unforgiveness is serious. You, you know it. You felt it. it the, it's the cause of so much anger and hostility and separation that we feel today. And that's why Paul Tripp says, there's no call of Christ more difficult than the call to forgive others. It's hard. And some of you are struggling with it in a very tangible way. But listen, unforgiveness is cancer to the family. It's cancer to the church. Are you willing to pursue reconciliation? Are you willing to go to that person and ask them to forgive you? And, and are you willing to grant that word of forgiveness? Because, listen, James 2.13 says, James 2.13 says, Judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. That's a hard word. That means that a person who goes on refusing to forgive ultimately reveals that they've never understood or received the eternal forgiveness that God offers in Jesus Christ. You think about that. You, if you're not willing to forgive, you go on for years, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. On the other hand, people who forgive are people who understand the gospel. And isn't that beautiful? I remember Russ Moore telling a story one time about a guy who refused to forgive. He was a big army sergeant, huge guy, general, big, strong guy. And he preached a sermon on forgiveness. A guy walked up to him at the end of the sermon and he said, uh, so... Uh, I fought in Vietnam, and uh, there is one group of people that I'll never forgive, and they're Vietnamese people. And I just want you to know that. I'm not going to forgive them, so what, what's going to happen to me? And, and Russ Moore said, I'm just this little guy looking up at this big, strong general. And he said, I, he said, I just, this is what the Lord gave me. So I just looked at him and said, well, there's always hell. <laughs> And at the time, you think that, wow, that's right. You think about that. 
that, that if we go on in unforgiveness, then we have no promise of mercy. But on the other hand, if we are forgiving people, we show that we understand the gospel. When we forgive each other, we elevate the example of Christ. So Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's how we're to forgive one another. Think about this. Just like Jesus, just as fast, just as free, just as fully as Jesus did. So, church family, let's speak words of forgiveness to each other. I know it's hard. I, trust me, as a pastor, uh, we sit with people who are really, really battling in this area. And just may God help you and give you the courage to do what you know is right. To let it go. To go to a person and, and just reconcile your friendship. Go to the, before you lay your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother. Let's take care of that. Friends, if there's, any, if there's any relationships here that are not reconciled, will you call that person today? Grab a cup of coffee with them. Tell them you want to just, let's bury the hatchet. Let's, let's move forward. And let's, let's, let's move forward with forgiveness. Well, that leads us to the last gospel word. Words of grace. Um, Proverbs 16.24 says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Gracious words are redemptive words. You know what they do? They have a tendency to steer our life. They have a tendency to steer us in a direction of life. Um, Proverbs 25.15 says, A gentle tongue can break a bone. Did you ever wonder what that verse means? A gentle tongue can, can break a bone. A gracious tongue. Um... Think about how a stone is worn away over years by the constant dripping of water. Something so soft as water can wear a stone away, can shape it. So the heart of a man or a child is shaped by grace. Consistent grace over years will break a bone. Consider the power of grace. That's why I said, please get Elise Fitzpatrick's book, Give Them Grace. Start giving your children grace. Consider the power of gracious words. Imagine a dad approaches his disobedient son. He's a mess. He's very disobedient. And he approaches him and he says, Son, I notice that you're having a hard time obeying daddy. It seems like something is going on in your heart. And I can understand that. Because there are times that daddy has a hard time obeying God. How can I help you? How can I serve you? Those are redemptive words. Those are gracious words. And they bring healing and life. You know, I mean, in marriage relationship, you get this all the time. Okay? You don't do something that you should do. Uh, I heard an example of it. You think of an example of a guy with a, a husband who should be taken out the trash. His wife says, will you take out the trash? And uh, he said, yeah, I'll get to it in a second. Five, ten minutes go by. Honey, will you take out the trash? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll get to it. Get to it in a minute. Uh, yeah, dear. Get to it in a minute. Ten minutes go by. Honey, this is the third time I'm asked, would you please just take out the trash? And begrudgingly he gets up and he just walks over, grabs the bag and takes it out. And he's all self-righteous. I can't believe that she's, she's just so just nagging me this whole time. And, he, you know, that's one, that's one way to do it. But imagine 
Imagine that that same man is sitting there and she hears, will you please take out the trash? Will you please take it? And then the third time she says it and he still doesn't do it. And so she just grabs the bag graciously, takes it out, puts it away, comes down to the sofa and lays down beside him. And then he gets up about ten minutes later, walks in there and sees the trash has been taken out. That breaks a bone. That breaks a bone. Because you realize, what a jerk I am. How unresponsive am I as a husband? And yet how loving and gracious is she? See how grace is sweetness to the soul. Grace is life-giving. It changes us. It's, it's amazing. These are, these are redemptive words. We don't just need gracious words, though. We need words of grace. We need words about grace. We need to be reminded of the gospel over and over again. Paul tells us that we are to be speaking the truth in love. Quite literally. You know what that means? We are to be truthing one another. Okay? It's an ongoing pattern of speech. Now, typically, when we hear that phrase, speaking the truth in love, what do you think about? You think about a conflict, don't you? You think about a situation where you've got to say, Hey, brother, I, you know, I've got to... Got to tell you something. Um, I, want, I want to share share something with you in love. I want to direct you. Thinking about a conflict, and now that's a fine point of application. It's a necessary point. I think it's very valid, but I don't think that's the main point of Ephesians four. Um, I think the main point in Ephesians four is that we are to be busy reminding each other of the truth, speaking the truth, speaking words about truth, speaking the truth in love. That's loving to speak truthful words in other words we're to speak words about truth and i need my friends preaching the gospel to, of truth to me daily i need daily truth because daily i drift into sin and daily i drift into false hope and false gospels and i need to be reminded as j.i packer has said helpfully that every time i sin i am momentarily having an identity crisis Momentarily, I'm forgetting that I am in Christ and that he's everything to me. I need friends to remind me that when I sin, I'm looking to a false savior for happiness. I need friends to remind me that I don't need anything smaller than Jesus for my joy. That he's enough for me. I need to be reminded that I'm God's son and that he has the best things for me. And and what we need is for those truths to so grip us those gospel truths that the climate of our marriages and our parenting and our church is changed and transformed. In short, we don't just need gospel doctrine. We need a gospel culture, a culture of the gospel with our parenting, a culture of the gospel in our marriage, a culture of the gospel in our church. Ray Ortland said this this week on Twitter. He said, show me your church's gospel doctrine. I care. I care about that. Show me your church's gospel culture. I care more because it says more. Great statement. Great statement. We can talk about justification by faith all day long. We can talk about being gospel-centered all day long. But are we living functionally like we're gospel-centered? See, So, words of grace, words of forgiveness, words of love. These are gospel words. Words of encouragement, words of correction, and words of truth. These are growth words. We need both. So how do we get them? How do we grow in this? Well, let me close by giving us some practical steps to pursue. I wrote down four ways to pursue change in our speech. Okay? Number one. Here you go. Four things. 
uh, is forget the past. Forget the past. Paul says, Philippians 3.13, he says, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. Basically, folks, just forget the past and move on. It's so easy to get swallowed up by remorse. Look at all the years that I've lost in marriage and, and, and in my parenting. And I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. And I'm sure it's just terribly discouraging. But listen, God is able to set you on a life-changing course, and it's not too late. Forget the past and move forward. You must not live in remorse. Number two, hope in God. We would never say this, but functionally, we live like our sin is bigger than God. You think about this. You, you, know, you, you know, you think that you'll always struggle with that same sin. You know, you're just, you're just trapped in that. I'm always going to be this guy. Why? Who said that? Where did that lie come from? The truth is, God is bigger than your sin problem. He's bigger than your mouth problem. Sin is not your master anymore, and victory over sin is certain. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus guarantee your victory over sin. Guarantee. Paul said, for sin will not have mastery over you because you are not under law, but under grace. Praise God. It is not your master. So take hope. Number three, recognize your sin. Recognize it. Do you see your sin? Are you aware of specific patterns of sin in your speech? Do you even see it? Do you see what others see? To use C.J. Mahaney's illustration, do you see the cream cheese on your mustache? Everybody else does. So get some help and ask some friends to point out where the cream cheese is. Recognize your sin. Number four, repent of your sin. (laughs) These are very simple. Okay? Don't live in remorse. Forget the past. Hope in God. Recognize your sin. Repent of your sin. That essentially don't make excuses. Paul Tripp says, people in situations do not cause us to speak the way we do. This is a great statement. Our hearts control our words. People and situations simply provide the occasion for our hearts to express themselves. It's not somebody else's fault. It's not your wife's fault. It's not that church member's fault. So we need to take responsibility and repent. Listen, if you know you're a gossip, if you know you're a critical person, then the question is, why aren't you repenting? We have to replace old habits with new ways. You say, I'm sorry, I I shouldn't talk that way. You say, I'm sorry, I, I should stop saying things like that. But Jesus says to you, then start talking a new way. You see the difference? It's not enough just to say, I'm sorry. Start talking a new way. Friends, this is not some pep talk on words. We are followers of Jesus Christ. And you do not have in and of yourself the strength to do what I'm talking about this morning. If this does not emerge from a personal and dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ, your desire to change and be transformed in your speech will always be a pipe dream. You have got to have the power of Jesus. You cannot change in these areas without Christ being resident in your life. Do you feel that? Do you sense that? Well, then if you do, then lean on him and lean hard on Jesus. In Christ, we find hope. And through the gospel, you can expose your weaknesses and your sins. The gospel is liberating. So open yourself up to others and get help. We can help. We can change and put away old ways. So here's my conclusion to you, okay? 
This is, not wish, this is not the wishful thinking of an unrealistic heart. This sermon on changing our speech. These two weeks. Okay? This, but this is rather a, a confident expectation of a guaranteed result that in Christ we are winning, listen, and will win this battle over our tongues. We no longer have to settle for bitter, angry, or destructive speech. Christ is at work in you. He has the power to break old patterns of speech and replace them with new habits. Very practically, that means as a wife, relinquish the fear that your marital communication will never improve. As a husband, refuse the notion that those angry words that you've always spoken will always be with you forever. As a parent, anchor your hope in God who will give you the power to speak words of grace in the, in the midst of emotional exhaustion and exasperation and frustration. Don't you see that as Christians, it's a complete denial of the gospel to look at your spouse and say, why bother? He won't change or she won't change. Or to look at your parenting and conclude these unrestrained emotions of mine, this lashing out or yelling at my kids will always be part of my parenting. No, it won't. No, it won't. The gospel is at work in you. So may God help us stand on the promise that Jesus came to change us from the inside out. Through Jesus, our whole world of talk has been redeemed. He's rebuilding us. And that means if you're in Christ, you have a new tongue. What a thought. Christ has already transformed your tongue from an instrument of death to an instrument of life. Jesus died for your mouth. Your tongue is free. It is no longer a slave to sin. It's a slave to righteousness. Jesus tamed what no man can ever tame. Your tongue is already tamed by Jesus. So with that power and by the grace of God, take those tamed tongues and start using them for the praise of his name. Let's pray. Father, take these weak words and infuse life in them through your spirit and change our marriages, our parenting, our kids, and our church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.